Today, we have an incredible story of survival with Adventure Aaron, who joins us in the studio. And in our shark bite, we'll learn about a shark that wants to live on land. That's coming up next. You're listening to the Shark Week Podcast. G'day everyone and welcome to Shark Week the podcast. I'm your host Luke Tipple and today we have a really special episode because I'm joined in the studio by Adventure Aaron. Now imagine yourself shipwrecked in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You're surrounded by sharks. You have no food, no water, your life raft is leaking and you're being bumped by sharks through the bottom. Your parents have been told you are presumed dead and yet you live to tell the tale. Well that's what happened to Aaron. So Aaron, up to a couple of weeks ago, a bunch of people thought you were dead. What were you trying to do? Not be shark bait, really. <laughs> I first became aware of you with my neighbor, Chris. I mean, you, you and Chris go back a long time. Me and Chris have known each other for about a year. He lives straight down the street from me. And he said, hey man, you've got to meet my friend Adventure Aaron. You know, he's doing some real cool stuff. He's running around the world. He's looking for sponsorship. And I thought, hey, I, I got to follow this guy. That, that seems really cool. And then like a month later, he goes, he just sent me a link. And I think it said something like, Adventure Aaron feared lost at sea. And he just said, we're hoping for the best. And I was like, oh, that's not good. So what were you even doing in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on your own? So I was on a journey. I was on a personal spiritual pilgrimage in an ocean rowboat. I had been rowing it for 20 months, living out of it with everything I had from San Diego to Panama. And I made it down, had some trial and error. But uh, that was my circumnavigational point. So from that point on, I was to go all the way around the world as a first human-powered effort by sea. And it was going all right. And I, you know, that's when things got going. And I made it to the Galapagos as a first stop. Okay. And I saw some amazing things. Wait, so yeah. where was the Galapagos from the first stop? You started at Long Beach and paddled to Galapagos. I went from uh, San Diego to Panama. And then I left Panama and went to the Galapagos. In a rowboat? Yeah, ocean rowboat. So it was the first descent from a rowboat to Panama from uh, California, which was a great achievement. But now it was time to circumnavigate because you can't go back to the States from in a, in a ocean rowboat. You can't get back up with the currents. So the plan was to circumnavigate from Panama. What is an ocean rowboat compared to a normal rowboat? Let's help people with that. Okay, so an ocean rowboat has a cabin. It's been around since the 18... 18- late 1800s was the first uh use of them and there's a particular model that i really gravitate towards a maker called renak and they're self-riding they're generally carbon fiber and anywhere from single person to two person but there's no other form of propulsion other than the oars okay so you've set out on this ocean rowboat which is presumably supposed to you know keep you alive and safe as you go out on that i mean by the way, what the hell are you doing rowing across the entire world? You look like a fit guy, but that seems like a monumental effort. You know, you'll be surprised. Um, I had just done adventures for a decade around the world, and, and my, my whole focus is sharing other people's stories, kind of like yourself. And I just found this opportunity to do unconventional travel on with it usually leaves me unforgettable memories. The one thing I feared was the ocean. So I, I've also found over the years that if I can tackle something I fear, I find amazing beauty in it. So that that was where I was with the, the whole idea. But the boat itself self-rights and, and I'd done the homework and there are only four casualties over the course of, you know, the last thirty or forty years with this. It's becoming more popular. And it's just an amazing way to get that close on sea level 
and, and go across. And I still, to this day, believe uh, that that kind of boat vessel has the capability to circumnavigate, just like this time a sailboat first did. Okay, so you got to Galapagos, yeah. and then was everything working at this point? Uh, so I, I went back actually 500 nautical miles past the Galapagos when my water maker decided to fail. So I had to turn around, but I caught the right current and made it there. Everything except for the water maker was working, so I was able to replace that and gear up. I spent eight days in the Galapagos, and then I was able to replot my line for the Marquises. But So you went 500 miles outside of Galapagos yeah. and then 500 miles back? Correct. Okay, so you've done this useless thousand mile return trip to fix your water maker and then you set out again. Is that the last time that everything was working? Yes, and I was pointed at the Marquises. I was going for any any South Poly, Polynesian island I could hit, but I knew that that was around 10 degrees south latitude line or anywhere from 10 to 15. I was safe. If I went above that and I couldn't get down far enough south, I was in for a much longer journey, and I don't think I had enough food to do that because you're you're either going 100 days at sea or you're planning for, which would be 4,000 3,000 nautical miles, I think it is, from the Galapagos to the Marquises. But if you miss them, you're in for another 30 to 60 days to get maybe America, Samoan Islands. So, it, you, you know, it was really important that I tacked my way and flew real close to the wind, as they say. But the problem with that is if you fight the sea, the sea only fights back. And I knew that, I knew that and uh, I, it was important that I was in, in tune with everything at that time before I left. Now, why didn't you have a motor or a form of propulsion? I mean, are you trying to set records? Are you doing this for yourself? You know, I, I had just came off uh, the longest canoe journey by a Guinness of over 5,000 nautical miles. And I didn't take the record because it, my life isn't about the records. And I know that there are other people who have done things similar and just didn't play by the rules of Guinness. So there is the personal feat of that, but it wasn't so much. I've learned to kind of try to remove the ego part of it, but there's a, there's still a competitiveness inside me. So I was one with the sea. I don't know when you're only at the mercy of your oars and your own human power, you, your mind gets into a whole another element, you know, and, and that was the connection that I had with the ocean that I never knew I had to begin with that I loved. And I think that to this day made me one with the sea because it, I could have brought a solar motor. I could have had these other options, but when you know in the back of your head that you have those options or you know that you can quit anytime and go back to a house at, on land, it doesn't feel the same. So that was my, my I've always been a guy who goes all in and commits. Um, so I just started rowing and leading by action to kind of see how far I could go. So that was the other element is I was, I was on living on $10 a day at best. Wow. So you set out with no sponsors to row around the world, essentially. Yeah. And it, and it was, again, it was, people will kind of say, well, why didn't you, why weren't you more of it? It was my life at the time. You know, I was in a, a real transitional period and it was everything I had and just the point in my life that needed it. I was trying to let go of my decisions from the past and make amends with it and then lead by action moving forward in less words. You know, in this era, I felt like there's, we're in an era where talk is cheaper than it's ever been. And so you gotta, I just wanted to lead by action and just row my boat. And that's kind of what I've been saying since I'm just rowing my boat at the end of the day. So when did you get into trouble? Good question. So halfway across, of course, right? Of all times, you might as well be halfway across in the middle of the, the I, I'm, 
I don't know if there's a point in the ocean that you can be more than 1,500 nautical miles away from any other point of land, but that's where I was. It was actually, I think, 1,600 at the time, and I had taken on, I was about the three-degree south line, which is where the south equatorial current starts, which is a good thing because that was going to continue to keep me going west, but I was getting trade winds from, from Peru. And they were coming out of the southeast at about 10 to 15 knots. And at that point, the waves were different. And I was 1,600 nautical miles um, away from the Marquesas, 1,400 from the Galapagos where I had just left. And uh, a few waves had taken me, uh, uh, had breached my vessel. Smiles was the name of my vessel. And um, the waves grow in 13s, you know. So I was, I was noticing... Uh, that by the time the big one came if, if the, at the end of the day, like d daily, if those waves weren't really affecting me, then I was pointed at a safe line. So unfortunately, a couple of them got me and they zapped my solar panels. And I had um, gotten new solar panels that I was working with that were flexible. So unfortunately, they had a controller on the back and the salt water is brutal for any electronics and they surged them. And so, what you said the waves come in 13s. What do you mean? Uh, so the, the heights, I was the sets, I guess, for me, and I could be incorrect, but I, I just felt like as they grew 13, the 13 volt was always the highest. Right. And so then it would reset down. And if at each day, if, if the 13th one wasn't too high, I was okay taking an aggressive line against mm. them because I had to go south and they were coming at, at me. So that was. So, how big was the big 13th wave? Uh, at that time, with the, it wasn't. I would say maybe the crest was two meters. It was okay. close, but I. And, and were they cresting, or was it just ocean swell? They were cresting. I would say one out of every hundred set. So, so you're seeing white water form at the top of these things. Yes, and All you we, are what maybe two feet off the surface of the water. Yes. So my my meter of crest to look out for was three meters. Is what I was ballparking. And if there were two meters, I was okay. But again, this vessel is built like a bottle cap. And you know, the bottle caps, it, it was almost perfect. I, from, I had been in it for 20 months, going down the coast and going through storms. And I was like, the pongas, the fishing pongas, they had gone through worse than me. So I was, I was handling this boat really well. And I really, I got, we had a good relationship, you know, smiles. And I went, I told her no tricks and she agreed, you know, <laughs> stay, don't lay over, don't no rollovers and we're good. So unfortunately the solar panels did surge though. I rewired them. And at the time I had been doing all my broadcasting on Starlink, okay. which was really great because I wanted to capture the marine life that was happening. And they, they had launched that and the coverage was perfect. So I was using a lot of solar power at the time, which was my only form of power as well. What ended up happening is, is I lost total power when my solar panels a week later went out. I couldn't rewire them correctly. Um, and I noticed that I only had about three hours left to figure this out. So I immediately powered down Three hours left of power, you mean? Yeah. Okay. And I immediately powered down my devices that were going to offer me my GPS coordinates because people have been rowing oceans with no instruments for a long time, you know, and I, I knew I was okay there, but I needed to let my, my, my small little group of people that knew what I was doing at the time, I thought it was small, uh, sent a couple quick messages on my sat phone um, to, with a spot that said, hey, I'm losing power. I've got this, but 
just you know you're not going to hear from me i've got about 1600 nautical miles to go and until i hit land and at the time when i powered off it was i think 12 percent left okay so so you left yourself just a little bit just in case exactly which became <laughs> a temptation let me tell you but what i ended up finding out is i did the math and i had 40 days and because i was on a spiritual pilgrimage as well I now was able to, I had read the stories in my book of David and Goliath, Noah with the rain, Moses with the mount, and Jesus with the wilderness. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to test my faith for 40 days on the ocean. Where else can you go for 40 days and not hear anything other than your own head? So you got to talk to somebody, hopefully it's a, your higher being or whoever it may be, but just not yourself because you don't want to go insane. I mean, at that yeah. point, you're definitely wandering through the desert listening to the demons in your brain, right? Thank you very much. That's exactly <laughs> what happened. So that was the that was the agreement I did make too. I was like, because I couldn't believe I had forty days. I I was like, this is beautiful. Forty days, six hundred miles. Let's go. And um, I noticed about halfway through, as I was getting into this forty day journey, that I would turn on my my phone, check my coordinates, and if my line, which I all I was doing was pointing my dagger board at a certain way and the rudder at a certain angle, if it kept going in the right direction, I was okay. So, around ten or twelve days into it. I was impressed. I was actually holding my line, doing great. And I did notice that no matter how off the phone was, every day would lose a percent. So that little window I had was about to end real quick. And sure enough, June 1st uh, is when it ended. And things things got real interesting, you know, because you couldn't even, not that I was powering it on for any other reason, but now I'm really in the blind. What happened after that? So I was unaware that I was missing, you know, and one of my friends on social media, the audience and Instagram was really growing and I was doing a lot of videos, short videos to kind of talk about my journey. But I guess the chain of events that happened is one of my friends from New Zealand who's really in tune with the higher world type mysticism, mystic, Harry Krishner-ish, she felt a weird vibe, uh, went on my page to check in and then between that and a few other friends, they all came together and made a group page. And what that did was kind of collaborate some of the experts in this world. And what ended up happening was, is they started to alert the boats that I was missing as you do. I mean, what do you do when your friend is not talking to you anymore? Right. They didn't know. And I didn't know. So, uh, they started to put together this group and it grew to 3,500 people. So the idea is they're letting any ocean going vessel, cargo vessel, coast guard, anybody who might be out there, let them know that, hey, be on the lookout for somebody who may have lost communications as a rowboat out there. We don't know where he is or how he is. Yes. So it's now, you know, I'm, I, it's June 1st and I had uh, gone completely dark with my coordinates and I had, um, Fast forward to, I guess I had 15 more days by my calculation to make it to the Marquises. And I was really in a routine of eat, pray, row. And that's, I was, eat means I would catch two fish every morning because they were falling in a Dorado. And literally it was just toss a little lure off, bring them in. And no more than that. Cause I didn't want to piss. I didn't want to piss off the ocean you yeah. know, cause I did feel like that was a little, if I was sloppy with the way I filleted a fish. I felt a presence <laughs> and it's probably because I'm going insane at the same time, still in this I bet boat, you are. but anything not to make things 
many worse than it could be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at this point, you're a floating fish attracting device, you know, a fad. And, you know, we look for those when we're out spearfishing and stuff. You go out and if you see a log or drifting kelp or anything that's in the middle of the ocean that's been there for a long period of time, not like a moving boat, but something drifting with the current, you know there's fish under that. And that's where we go spearfishing. So that's what you've turned yourself into. I imagine there must have been some good sized fish under there. Exactly. And I'm glad you cued me on this because that was the time I saw my first shark. Okay. And this was, I had seen a whale shark in the Galapagos and I, I couldn't even grab my, I was so shocked at the fin of that, that I couldn't, I saw the fin, it was all leopard checkered, whatever, yeah. it, for lack of better, <laughs> and I was running around, oh my God, trying to find my phone and I couldn't even film it. But now I was getting ready to clean the bottom because I was afraid I was going to have barnacles under there. Yeah. And as I'm getting off to get in, I noticed that uh, there was a significantly large, what looked to me like a bull shark um, circling the boat. And I also noticed that all my fish friends were no longer around, mm. which was interesting because a few days later, uh, a different shark came by and the fish were still there. And this was a much larger fish. Mm. And it wasn't a whale shark, but it was the biggest shark I had seen. And I was shocked that the other fish weren't scared of it. And it was it would come closer to me to the side of the boat they'd all circle a little bit um so that was the first time i kind of got my hands around the the whole idea that there's fish um and yeah it was cooking was easy you know it was like you said i they were they were actually coming up and kind of sunning underneath the, the boat you know the dorado were? yeah they my, would my, go yeah. sideways and i've never seen it before but they would almost rub their skin against the bottom of the boat interesting and i haven't seen like that before playing with me and i thought that was amazing well, they're probably cleaning off parasites and stuff, right. um, but you know, we'll, we can leave it at them playing with you if that okay. makes you brain. <laughs> <laughs> they were looking at this for... point. You've seen a lot of sun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good point. So we are now probably it's the fifteenth, and I am estimated to be seven to eight days away from my journey of reaching the Marquises and having this awesome story of success and test of faith, right? Even though it would have been a personal one, it, I was so excited. I was talking to God, and this is great. And I, I had just woken up in the morning. I had a solar oven, so I was cooking one kilo of rice, one meal a day. It was one kilo of rice that took me four hours in my solar oven. And the fish I would put either as fish jerky or I would put it at the end in the solar oven. And I noticed the wind and the, and the water was definitely different. It was 83 days in now since I had left the Galapagos, and I had been 33 days in of rowing in the blind, complete silence, and I just felt a different presence. And I remember still being harnessed in and just making my meal on the deck and looking and feeling a presence to the right that was deadly silent. And I, out of the corner of my eye, saw at that time the biggest crest I had seen to date out of 20 months of living out of my boat. And immediately jumped in back into my hatch, which um, unfortunately I braced myself for impact, not expecting to roll over, but within two seconds was upside down. And water was coming in, and I didn't have the, the hatch shut because I was harnessed to the deck still. So your rope's blocking the, yeah, the door from closing. Exactly. And, and that, that door would make that capsule watertight and therefore not sink the boat. Is ideally, that the idea? with the air in it, yes. And it would the air would make it bring, bring it back up, assuming that my ballast and some of the things were secure. Uh, it's probably 50-50. The maker would probably say it's 80-20 or a little bit more than that. But, you know, a lot of things have to be perfect when you capsize. Um, so unfortunately I was just sideways with the wrong wave that day 
if I knew my coordinates, if I was a little bit better planned, I wouldn't have been pointed that that direction. And I own that as a captain, Fair enough. you know, but uh, I mean, I imagine your, your brain has probably turned it into quite a monster, but could you give a realistic size of what that side of what size of the wave was that was able to roll you four meters? Wow. So, crest, crest. Yeah, 12 to 14 feet or so. And it turns out later the weather report that I, that there's 30 knot winds and uh, four to six foot swell, meter swells. So, wow. So I think I was spot on. Okay. You're, so you're upside down yeah. in the Pacific, water's leaking in the door. What's going through your brain? Uh, I got to get out of the hatch because I saw it coming in. I saw it in air pocket, but I hadn't been upside down. And at that point I decided to swim out. Knowing that there was other shark, and I, I hadn't swam and cleaned the bottom of the boat at, at all because I was worried about that first bull shark. And I say worried is I, my knowledge of sharks is that they would not harm me unless I was a feeding. It was in a, the wrong situation at the time. I could be totally wrong, but I had done some work swimming in and out of the cages with them already and, and working with people who are very advocate about the the safety of the, you know the the species itself so i, I had no point I had no option at this point i had to swim out swim out and i just remember popping out on the side of the boat and the waves were bouncing the boat everywhere and i took a look at, at the boat and i realized my world is now upside down and my test of faith was cursing at the time i thought we had a deal you know we were almost there it's day 33 the only thing i know about day 33 is that's when the story of jesus his he died and i was like i do not want to die I, I i'm let's go so i went into a survival mode and i just started repeating raft beacon ditch bag raft beacon ditch bag i don't know where those words came from but i guess i had already ran through this this process in my head beforehand i did some training with the seals before uh i got to this point out of casually just because a neighbor was a, a seal and he gave me some tips and some good coaching for this part so i was at that point where i got to get the raft i had my life jacket on i'm still strapped but it wasn't inflated so i could dive up down and i remember diving and it's the boat was upside down i'm diving i'm thinking i'm on the stern i'm on the port i think i'm on the port i'm on the stern i think i'm in the bow i'm in the back it was a lot of confusion going on well i mean with that type of swell and wind going on you must have been just tossed around even under there right yeah yeah and then i was able to find the beacon which was on the outside rip it off the eperb was a different device and that's fixed and that activates on water so that i left alone but i ripped off this beacon and i remember just i okay now i need help yeah now press the button yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so lift it up it's a different button you know you lift up the antenna you press it uh and at that point i look for my raft and it was still up inside the boat so i had to swim underneath and pull out the floating the the raft which is in a box it's an inflatable raft it's the painter line which is the one you pull to to make it pop open was still attached so that was good and as i pulled it out i inf i pulled the painter it inflated which was great then I went into an assessment of, I got to get my ditch bag, but oh my gosh, smiles, my boat could sink and bring me down and I'm still harnessed to it. So I tried to unhook the harness and I couldn't, I was tangled up with the running safety line, took off the life jacket. And at that point realized I got to get into a safe environment and jumped into the raft with just my board shorts at the time and my gloves on from fishing and the personal beacon in my hand. And then I assessed the situation again. So now I'm, I'm, I'm 
the painter line is hooked to the to the vessel and i started to think okay just in case smiles goes down i got to make sure i can cut away from this so as i'm unhooking that i'm bouncing against it in the raft into the smiles into the boat smiles is not self-riding at that time i thought mainly because the 13th wave is the one i think got me so it would be a little bit of effort to get back and I, I tried to lift it and move it. It didn't look like it was going anywhere. Did you think a bigger wave might right itself, like it rolled over again? I did, but because it was the 13th, it was going to take a, a lot of time for that to happen. Well, what's the what's the interval on swells? Give people an idea here. Is it like a half hour time period to between 1 and 13? I would say that's a really good question. I'd say 10 minutes. Okay. All right. And I didn't, I didn't feel like it was going to do it. And I was like, this, the way that that one got me so quickly, I was in kind of like, wow, that, that happened way too easily. And I got to find another plan. So I'm in the raft. I unhook the painter line and I lost hold of it. And at that point, uh, I noticed I was floating faster down current because I had a canopy than the vessel. And I had about a two second chance to make a decision to jump in and stay with the boat and try to pull my raft with me and grab that ditch bag which had my life in it all the footage every id money that the last bit of money because everything i'd sold everything and put it into this boat so everything i had was really invested there plus power bars things you put for safety for survival equipment um and i stayed with the raft i just didn't want to abandon ship and it was already you know it was the only ship i saw that was at the, I mean, in in retrospect, that seems like is the right decision because that you know smiles very well went down, right? It's Do a you good question. It's on the bottom of the ocean right now. It's a good question. I I people have said that the air pockets will will keep it going, mm. but uh, I think it's at the bottom. I haven't heard anything otherwise. But sometimes they wash up. But because that hatch was open, I think it would have gone down. It may yeah. have taken some time. Eventually, yeah. And then you you're in the middle of the ocean with nothing like right. you're dead at right. that point right exactly yeah. at least with the raft you've got a chance yes now about that raft i noticed there was a little puddle in the raft and a slight leak at the time so now at this point i am kind of assessing the situation on my new vessel i threw out the the drogue which was great because the seas were really rough and i was concerned now nah, this thing's going to roll over and I had opened the pack that's in there, and you have you have like uh, packets of water, some instructions that are really outlined in big bold letter because your mind is going so fast, you you're just panicking. And it says listed like eight items: do this, do that, do this, do that. So I immediately opened the pack, put together the oars, um, didn't touch the water for the first period of time because I knew I could probably go 24 hours before I started. I should start drinking this water, mm-hmm. which I think saved a lot. Uh, noticed there was no food, no flares, and I had my PLB in my hand, and then I just started bailing. And at that point, I um, bailed every 10, I, five, 10 minutes, I had to bail, because uh, if I stopped, I would have sunk. Um, I noticed that um, this, the waves were still coming in 13s, and man, there were white caps and swells. I was really hoping that that was gonna stop. And then within probably three hours of now living in this raft, I saw and felt a little bit of a bump underneath uh, on the, you, you're, you're really floating on a, a rubber tube. Yeah. You feel everything. I felt is, a little bit of a bump. Is the, the raft, is it one of the kinds where the sides are inflated, but the bottom is just a, a piece of exactly. material, right? Exactly. And the leak was coming from in between. 
in between the water. The, uh, sorry, the, the air pockets and the bottom of the raft? Yes, and the inside. Okay. So so I didn't know that if what that meant that if it the bottom fell out, I could probably still hold on to the sides. Yeah, but you're in a... Right. Yeah, that, that'd be tough because I, I guess you could almost flip it because you've got a roof on it, right? Yes. So you could almost flip it over and treat that as the floor and then you're baking in the sun, but exactly. you're still floating. Yes, and now I realize that I'm not only floating, I'm floating I'm no longer alone. Yeah. And that's when I saw my first, my third and final shark. And this one was something I had never seen before. Okay, so let's get into the shark stuff. Uh, how big was it? What color was it? Do you know what kind it was? I, I didn't know what kind it was, but I had posted a video on Instagram before and someone mentioned the words oceanic to me. And at that time, I didn't have a chance to study it. And I, I didn't when I was in the water until I got out of the water later. But this one was about eight feet small, eight feet, maybe 10 feet. But obvious, the first thing I noticed is it was hovering around my drogue, which was probably 10 feet off of my raft. Yep. And it was falling uh, behind it. Sorry, explain a drogue for people. Sure. A drogue is a sock. It's like a wind sock that you drop in that holds you in some crazy water so that it kind of points you in uh, in the right direction and ideally prevents you from overturning a little bit too. Yeah. It also kind of looks like to a shark as this thing kind of flapping around in the water. It kind of looks like the, uh, you know, chum. the things that we drag to attract sharks. Chum. <laughs> yeah. That's called chum, right? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Like a decoy, you know. That's right, because when I went cage diving in Hansby, they would drag that chum yep. to chase the, the shark and come slamming into the cage. Yeah. yeah. Oh. It's definitely not a good idea. But uh, yeah. okay, so it's yeah. def- it, it makes sense it'd be attracted to the drogue and would be curious about what's up in the in the raft. And if it was an oceanic at 8 to 10 feet, that's a solid-sized shark. And so, Luke, to confirm that it would have been, you would I noticed a white paint spot on the top of its fin and on the two sides yeah so the the dorsal fin would have been rounded a uh, big round lobe and it looks almost like uh paint that's splattered exactly with what a, it was. a white paint splatter across the whole top that kind of almost drips down is a good way to think about it and then if you did see the pectoral fins big long pectoral fins that are rounded and they've got those same kind of white splotches it's exactly what it was big narrow head the oceanic white tips uh, responsible for probably the most amount of mariner deaths. Uh, in fact, the USS Indianapolis, which is the largest, uh, the largest costing sea disaster in terms of life, the the anecdotal evidence and from survivors has been that it's been oceanic white tips that were responsible. Wow. They are beautiful but ferocious animals. Now you got to imagine they are very much an oceanic species. You know, they're, they're drifting around, they're swimming, they're very opportunistic. They're looking for those logs in the middle of the ocean that might have food on them. So when they find something that could be food, they're going to be opportunistic about it. Now, whether that would mean that they would straight up attack you if you put your leg out, probably not. But if you were drifting around for a while, if that floor had gone, if you had to get out and clean the bottom, there's every chance you could have you know, it would have came match there. Yeah, I mean, they, they are. You know, we've seen it several times in the Red Sea, even lately. Yeah, they've got just gone after swimmers. You know, just opportunistic feeding. You know, wow. one one or two big bites from those things, and you're just going to bleed out and you're dead. So the bailing didn't help then, because I'm splashing water in out. It's it would have been a minor attractant, but it certainly wouldn't have been an unattractant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I mean, you're. You got to keep yourself dry and and keep yourself in there. But you know, if it's you said it was bumping the bottom of the boat, it, it only the bumped it initially. I believe it was a bump, but that's what caused me to look outside a little bit. So yeah. I don't know if it was the shark or not. But 
that's when I did see the shark. Mm. And and over the course of maybe the next two hours, it did circle the drogue, and then it would circle the raft. It mm. kind of was checking both. And I thought, honestly, Luke, I thought it was the coolest experience of my life. <laughs> I have to say, man. I, I mean, I know that my life was in it was borderline, but holy cow! In the a raft in the middle of the South Pacific, eye to eye with an oceanic shark. Yeah. I mean, maybe that was your messenger, man. I mean, that's, that's a good way to look at it. I mean, at that point, theoretically, you're at, you're in a dire situation. Like you've been separated from your boat. You've got limited water. You've got limited little clothes. to no food. Did you have any rations at all? Uh, no, and I had no clothes. I was in board shorts. Okay, so you're you're screwed at this yeah. point. But to have the perspective of this is a cool experience, I mean, hats off to you. Yeah. I mean, that's, most people would look at that and go, okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a death wish either. That's one of the things. I was diagnosed with cancer in 2008, and I know there's only a lifespan of 26,000 days these days. So I just try to live every day to the fullest. That doesn't mean I have a death wish or anything like that. But uh, what ended up happening was the Coast Guard plane then came by. Yeah, so how long was that? So at this point, everyone thinks, everyone on land thinks that you've either completely lost comms, which is clear, and you're potentially, because you're not checking in with your other devices, you're potentially dead, is yeah. what I was told. Yeah. How long were you drifting around in the raft before you had some type of, you know, the, the airplane came over? Sure. I think it was, uh, I pressed it. I didn't have a clock uh, or watch, so it was three hours after sun when I capsized. And then it was probably two hours before sun when I saw the plane. So that would have been about eight hours in it, maybe. Um, so you, you put out the, the PLB. Yeah. And then within eight hours, there was a plane over the top. Yeah, of it was actually sooner than that. Yeah, so... That That's was unbelievable. Incredible. It is. And, and here's what happened, Luke, is that group of people had been working with so much maritime that they had also um, helped the Coast Guard alert to another vessel that was missing. We had been, you know, the seas were not great, but there was another vessel that was worth the commodity of the USCG. Thank God. I would hate for them to spend it on me only, but to go check out and, and see if they could find that plane. And they called off that search the day I pressed my distress button. I'd already been called off, uh, perished to, and my, my parents were notified that I was dead three days before I pressed that button. So when they who, got my, who made that call and on what justification? Uh, I, you know, that's one of those things I hate to point fingers and, and, and to no one's fault. I don't know. Uh, but I just know that the, Man, my right. father called the Coast Guard and they have limited resources to even outdo that stretch. And the Coast Guard was uh, informing him that they couldn't do another search again, um, that uh, they believed I was perished and they would put it as a BOL, be on the lookout for. And so, my, you know, I, I actually come from a Coast Guard family as a grandfather, as a Coast Guard, but we... We respect that, and and rightfully so, and that that was understood. So we let my dad, I guess, let them know them, that. And uh, luckily, when I pressed the button, the plane was still there looking for. They had just got my alert. So there's a lot of things that lined up. But wow. if it wasn't for those people that on friends that came together, the strangers turned friends. The story would have never happened. I mean, the, a lot of those things would have never alerted the RCC. Uh, you know, it just 
it's just amazing how it all came together. So and that's, literally social media saved your life. Yeah. And, <laughs> a, and a Facebook group saved your life. Yeah. I was on a that's mission. Nuts. It is. And I was on a mission to promote humanity in the right way, formerly being in the news. And I wanted to tell a good story, but I was on a mission to help other people. Little did I know I was going to become a story and they were going to help me. And that's exactly how it worked out. So, so you see the plane, and I yeah. guess at this point you're probably like, you remember Tattoo from the uh, the island? Like, the plane, the plane, you must, <laughs> the plane, boss. You the must plane. have been excited. Yeah. yeah, boss, the plane. That's exactly what I was thinking. It was the most beautiful sight I had ever seen. The red and white letters. I couldn't believe how quick it was. I would say four or five hours, Luke. But man, when that thing came, I then was I had already been in silence too. So for so long, it was hard to process things. You know, your head is already like that morning you were just catching fish. Yeah. Now you're no longer, it's just, so I'm, I'm overwhelmed with the process yeah. part. I'm not hungry at all. Cause the adrenaline is still going. I'm not thirsty. I'm staring eye to eye with this shark and here comes the plane. So they dropped two flares into the water, which lit up the water. At that point, I never saw the shark again. But I didn't. I wasn't on the lookout for it. But what happened was two rafts started to fall down, inflatable rafts. I think they saw me bailing, and they realized I was in trouble with my raft. Um, and then a barrel came down on a parachute, which I knew I had to get to. Unfortunately, it was dropped up current for me, and I was going faster down current to get to them. And I debated swimming to it, uh, but I didn't know where the shark was. And um, was later told by the Coast Guard and some uh, military that that's a smart move. They won't drop guys in if there's shark activity. It, it was a known predator. So I felt yeah, swimming, little... swimming from the raft up current, which would have taken a hell of a lot of effort to start with. You're a yeah. fit guy. Yeah. You might have made it. But that shark, if it was around, there's a real good chance it would have gone for you. Okay. A real good chance. Good to hear. Yeah, you made the right call there. Okay. Besides the fact that the exhaustion of, and with everything you're going through, the exhaustion of swimming up current and then your raft being a sail disappearing at a faster rate than you'd be able to chase it. Like, yeah, one way or another, that probably would have cost your life, that decision. It was good to hear uh, because the plane, it got dark, ended up leaving. And I would hear things on frequencies and transmissions either because I was going insane or I was actually hearing it. But I did hear 11 hours. I thought I heard them saying to someone, 11 hours. I thought I heard them saying that they, they send the rescue. Midday, uh, I saw the second most beautiful sight, this huge ship. And I knew that it was going to have a hard time seeing me. You know, my little raft. And um, to fast forward, it, the ship approached me, gave me a honk, and I gave it a wave to let them know I was not, I was capable of hopefully moving. Hmm. And then began to process now, okay, I think it's going to come pick me up. At that point, I, it, I was holding on to the front of the raft, still bailing. The life ring started to come down, and I saw about 20 people on deck. They were able to get me a ring. I tied it to the vessel. I then saw the next step, which was this huge cage that was coming down and leaped like I've never left before onto this cage, wrapped one hand into it, and then heard the biggest cheer from the crew that I had. That was the first sounds I had heard in 34 days. Wow. Uh, human voices. And um, maybe the next two minutes, I was hanging by the cage, being hosted up with everything I had, and then put on deck. And, um, you know, when I heard, when I, uh, before when I realized I had 40 days, I heard, in my, and I wrote down in my captain's journal, be brave. 
and when I landed on this vessel um, and I was given clothes off their own back uh, and, sh and took a shower, and when I went to put on the shirt, it, I, I read the light letters from the crew. It said, be brave. It said, brave. Wow. And I got goosebumps because I it wasn't about me being brave. It was about the connection that I had that connected it to other people that was a much better story of faith and how we're all connected in this sea, you know, of, and brothers and sisters. And that was my end game was to spread the humanity of the world. So it just was like, okay, I'm no longer arguing with you, God. You, I, I see your point. Well played, you know, and I was alive to, to share the story. That is an incredible story. I can't believe you're alive, to be honest. Like, legit, you should not be here. Um, that's it. Incredible. Thank you. Absolutely I, incredible. I, I appreciate it. And to have the, the, the mindset that you have about it, I mean, I, I'm quite convinced just uh, having met you today, I'm quite convinced that whatever mission you're on, whatever powers that be are out there, that one way or another, whether internal, external, whatever, that's what got you through. Because having the presence of mind to do the things that you did to make the decisions you did throughout saved you for sure. But having the the guts and the you know starting out saying hey i'm gonna go and kind of prove a point be brave i'm gonna test myself it seems like you got your test because <laughs> <laughs> i think it would have been pretty easy to give up for for people who didn't have that same that same sense of the mission that they were on so how you are re-assimilating re to life now it's tricky i bet i'm in the current and um i'm sharing it as much as i can but i it, I have to admit, I really liked the adventure part and the story of fate and humanity, and I felt like I was on the right path. And if there was another vessel that was proper and ready to go, I can't say no. You'd, I would go you'd right, jump straight back on the right boat? I'd go right back to Panama and relaunch in January when the winds are right. And I'd make sure we document it and share the beauty of the ocean and all the species it has. Is that something you actually want to do? Absolutely. I just need now the sponsors and network behind me to do it. Oh, good luck to you, mate. I, I, I can't wait to see you hit New Guinea and hit, hit Australia and, and get across that. And I'll be uh, tuning into your Facebook group for sure because that seems pretty important. Awesome. And thanks for all you do, Luke. It's, it's great to uh, hear such a great uh, perspective on the ocean, man. So you're doing the great things and appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, it's time for today's Shark Bite where Sierra brings us something cool from the ocean. What have you got for us today, Sierra? Yeah, so I know you were just talking to Aaron about how he can't wait to get back out on the water, but there's actually a species of shark that's trying to get out of the water and onto dry land. <laughs> okay, tell me about it. So it's called the epaulette shark, and they have these like meaty paddle-shaped fins that they can use to actually walk. So they've been seen walking across the ocean floor, but also on dry land. That's so cool. Do you think they'll uh, stop breathing air soon? Honestly, who knows? They're the youngest shark at 9 million years old, which doesn't seem that young to us, but they're the youngest shark species out there on the planet. So who knows what they'll evolve into. How long can they stay out of water for? Actually, it's like up to two hours, which is pretty crazy. They slow their heart rate down. Yeah. And then they can survive without oxygen for up to two hours. Wow. I knew they had that behavior. I didn't know it was two hours. That's this is pretty crazy. crazy. So are the epaulette sharks coming to get us? They sure are. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's awesome. Thanks, Sierra. You're welcome. 
Okay, that's it for today's podcast. I want to thank Adventure Aaron for joining us and everyone out there, you definitely need to check him out and follow him. I mean, hell, his followers may have been responsible for saving his life. So follow him on Adventure Aaron on all uh, social media platforms. You can look at adventurearon.com. And if you want to contribute to getting him back on the ocean, check out rowingmyboat.com. That'll be a fundraiser. He's trying to raise 100 grand to put another boat back on the ocean and get back out there and test fate again. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Luke Tipple. I'll chat to you soon. Shark Week, the podcast is produced by Delve Media for Warner Brothers Discovery. Luke Tipple is the executive producer, and our writer and producer is Yale Rice. Our researcher and associate producer is Sierra Kehoe. For Warner Brothers Discovery, the executive producer is Christina Bavetta, and the coordinating producer is Corinne Wilson. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review and subscribe to help our mission to give sharks a voice.